right, welcome everybody to Bible Ask Live, and this is another week. We're happy to be in 2021, and today we are uh, joined by special guest and friend Natalie, and we are actually going to be covering today the top 10 questions from 2021. So we're going to go more lightning speed through these questions, really touch on what were some of the most popular questions of the year. And Natalie, are you able to uh, join us? Yes, and um, I think you meant to say the top 10 questions from 2020. Great, let's bring those up. All right, so our first question is, are mermaids mentioned anywhere in the Bible? This was question, the, the 10th top question. Do you want to jump in on this, Natalie? Um, at the top of my head, I'm going to say no, they are not mentioned in the Bible, except if the Bible mentions Dagon, which was the god that was half human, half fish. Um, and I know that uh, God sent an angel several times to cut down that abomination. And a, a lot of times people like to associate mystical creatures um, with ancient writings. And the Bible is very much an ancient writing, but it is not mystical in any way. Um, the Bible says we were created in God's image. Man and woman, he created them. And we have heads, we have arms, we have legs. In all creation, you don't see living today any such creatures. And so um, it's a fiction of imagination that people like to uh, project onto the Bible, grouping it up with mystical writings when it's very different. I think it's interesting you mentioned Dagon because the Bible often refers to, or depending on what translation you might have, it talks about sea peoples. And that actually was the Philistines. So the Philistines were known as the Sea Peoples because they were, you know, from the Mediterranean Sea Ocean and came from that area. But it's not that these were people living in the sea, you know, like half man, half fish, but it was just people who were navigating the ocean, the Mediterranean at that time. Yeah, that also brings to mind uh, people who commonly mistake it, uh, the sons of God as being actually angels and not human. And the sea peoples being humans that lived around the sea and the sons of God being people who followed God and not actually uh, non-human beings. Exactly, yeah, that's a good point. We could often take things that are in the Bible and really take it down this really bizarre road where most of the time it is just talking about people. So yeah, great point. It's interesting to me that uh, you guys mentioned these two connections, because I have to admit, when I read this, I thought, who, where would someone even get the idea that mermaids are mentioned in the Bible? So um, I appreciate your, your sharing this, then, you know, talking about Dagon, talking about these connections where those that may have been inferred from. Are we ready for our next question? And before we go on, I just want to say, if you do have questions, feel free to 
submit them to uh, you know SS. We'll we are live. We will love to answer your questions and uh, just give us a shout out too, please. Uh, let us know where you're from, what uh, your week was like, and um, feel free again to engage us. We really want to make yep. this for you and in live. Absolutely. <clears throat> All right, let's go ahead and get our second uh, question up here. We're getting some happy Sabbaths in here. Yes, it is. It is a good Sabbath. Great. Thank, Thank you, you for all the comments. Yes. And by the way, I just want to give a special shout out to those of you who are joining us today from Twitch. We're now on YouTube, Facebook, and on uh, on Twitch. These three different pr platforms all at one time. So you can pick your favorite. Yep. Awesome. All right. Let's go ahead and get that next question up here. The ninth most asked question. How how long did it take the Israelites to cross the Red Sea? That's a good question. Natalie looks eager to jump <laughs> in here. Yeah. Um, I would think that it took them hours and uh, um, over a million people, was it, that crossed in came out of Egypt and uh, if they were, and it was in the middle of the night, so I'm sure many of them were very, very tired. Um, what do you think, Jay? Yeah, I think it's several hours <laughs> up to maybe a day or so is what I've heard. How? And you're right, it, it's, it was about a million people that crossed. How big is the Red Sea there? Do we know? Well, the Red Sea itself is kind of long. I mean, if you think of sort so, of the shape of Florida, that's kind of how the shape of the Red Sea is, how it just kind of works its way upward. But where they crossed it. But where they crossed, there's some dispute, but there are places where it's fairly shallow, and, and, and we're talking about maybe a, uh, less than a mile. Okay. Easily, you know, not, I mean, you could easily just look across and maybe you can't throw a stone over it, but it was uh, not too long. Oh, there we go. We got an image of it. I think and there then, was yeah, an you can see. I think there was an archaeologist, uh, I can't remember his name right now, that uh went and you know, kind of uh put some cameras into the Red Sea and he found like a platform, a raised upper bed. I think Wyatt was his last name. Yeah, I think Ron Wyatt. Yeah. yeah I yeah, his uh, his viewpoints aren't widely adopted, but I find them very interesting. I think what you're describing, Natalie, was what he said would look like a chariot on its side that had then been covered by coral. So now the chariot is decomposed, but you can see where the coral had grown around and encased the chariot. Yeah, he found like various uh, Egyptian artifacts towards the bottom of the sea, but um, this was probably over 20 years ago that I saw his material. And um, it was interesting that he suggested there was like this raised platform. And I know there are some people who don't agree with everything he says, um, but I thought that was interesting. And it must have taken hours and hours, uh, but I, 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 the Bible gives the impression that um, the, the next day when the cloud was lifted, and then the Ar Pharaoh's army rushed through. So it gives me the impression that it might have taken the whole of the night hours 
maybe right before sunset. And then once the morning came up and the Egyptians could see what was actually happening and the cloud was lifted up that they rushed through and that they were able to see all the bodies on the shoreline. So I don't think it was more than a 24 hour period. Yeah, exactly. That's how I read the Bible too in Exodus. Do we have any comments? I'm actually trying to pull up the Facebook comments as he speaks. So if you see me looking down, that's what I'm doing. I was trying to pull them up on my phone. Um, yeah, let's so go many ahead people and... other than Ron White have confirmed the Red Crossing site. Yeah, that's okay. that's true. Or well, I mean, or at least they said there's a lot of other people who uh, say they agree with them. Let's go ahead and get the next question up here, unless we have any more comments on that one. All right, top eight, the eighth, eight most popular question. What are the heavenly books mentioned in the Bible? So. And maybe uh, you can pull a verse up on this too to give uh, some context to where this is talked about it's probably talking about the book of revelation for example uh revelation 20 and or actually well it talks about books for example in revelation it talks about how everybody is judged by the book of life uh, revelation 20 verse 15 it says Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into lake of fire. So God is maintaining a book, a record. And, um, and in fact, if you look at Revelation 20, verse 12, it, does, it says there's more than just a book. It says, um, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books, books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the Dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. So there's the book of life that's in heaven. And then we also have other books. And these would be a book that would correspond with every single person. So just think of think of like for us with uh, Facebook, you know, maybe you're just blogging your day. You're talking about every little activity you're doing, what's happening. You have a record now of your life. That's sort of the same thing that's going on in heaven right now for all of us. So God's keeping account of the good and the bad we're doing so that at the end, it could be clear to everybody why someone would be saved or why someone would be cast into the lake of fire with the wicked. Yes, and there's also the book of remembrance. If we go to Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, um, the book of life is is one of the books and there's also the book of remembrance which seems to suggest um, a different um, record of like just having the names of those who are in the book of life this book is a record of the good deeds of those who fear the Lord um, so in Malachi 3 verses 16 through 18 we we read then those who feared the Lord, 
spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And so by specifically saying, yes, there's the book of life where those who um, uh, will get to go to heaven, their names are written there. God also wants us to know that every good deed that we do is not forgotten and um, it doesn't go unnoticed by him. And I think it's special that heaven treasures uh, these deeds and these good things that we do in a book called Remembrance. Exactly. And just to be clear that these books are in heaven, if you look at Daniel 7, uh, verses, uh, starting at verse 9, so Daniel 7, verse 9, it starts describing the scene of heaven and talks about how thrones are placed down, the Ancient of Days sits. If uh, I'm a lawyer and you know when a judge enters the room and then he sits down, now court is in session. And on verse 10 it says, A fiery stream came from the forth from him. Thousands, thousands, thousands ministered unto him. You know, describing all these angels all around him. And tens of thousands stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. So, so this is, these things we're describing are in heaven that we're talking about. These aren't, you know, some book here on earth. Yeah, and I think the next book that's specifically named among the books that we know exist um, is, is a book that holds a record of the sins of men. And the psalmist says that in Psalms uh, 130, verse 3, um, that God marks our iniquities in his book. And obviously, the, these iniquities uh, get erased when we you know, ask for forgiveness, and, uh, and God says, I will remove your sins and remember them no more. But in Psalms 133, it says, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So he's marking our iniquities, just like he marks our own good deeds. Um, and, and the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, that there will be a judgment and we will be judged for our good deeds or our bad deeds. Um, not that there's a weight or scale, but it says for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And there is a record of all our good and all of our bad. <clears throat> and the importance of this record, which a lot of people sometimes overlook is that when we go to heaven we might see people there that we didn't expect to see or we might miss people who we thought would be there and are not and the bible says that we will have a thousand years to look at the books and do the judgment um and and see for ourselves 
answers that we may be wondering. Like I'm sure Paul, um, you know, the last thing uh, right before Paul became Paul, he was Saul and he was persecuting the church. And Stephen, the first saint to be persecuted, saw all of the Pharisees handing their coats over to this young man named Saul. And, you know, he they're stoning him to death. And so that's Stephen's last memory of Saul. And then later on, we find out Saul gets converted and becomes Paul and is the greatest minister to the Gentiles. And when he goes to heaven, Stephen's going to be like, uh, Paul, Saul is here, like what's going on? And then the angels will probably take him to the records and, and show him the books where all of this is and all our answers will be, um, all our questions that we have will be answered in heaven. And um, I'm working on a blog right now to talk about what really happens during the thousand years, uh, the millennium, as a lot of people have questions about usually. Oh, that's awesome, because we were just talking about that last week. Super. Very timely. And I want to just talk about a little bit about these books. While we're talking about these books, and you're now feeling maybe a little bit paranoid that God's just watching everything, recording everything, and any mistake now is forever going to be recorded, that doesn't have to be the case. So, for example, Isaiah 43, verse 25. God says, I, even I, am he that blotteth out. Uh, oh, Natalie, can you mute? Okay. I, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake and will not remember thy sins. So, who is this he's talking to? I mean, this is not everybody, but the righteous who let their sins be covered by the blood of Christ can have their sins blotted out and God will not remember them. Uh, Isaiah 44, 22, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions and as a cloud your sins. Return to me for I have redeemed you. So, so that's the beauty of, of God's plan. He's made a way for all the bad things you've ever done to be wiped out and you can start in a sense with a clean slate. And that's what's, uh, what's even really cool about the New Testament where you can die to self and you be born even as like a new person. And all these old things now can pass away and you can live in newness with Christ. Amen. That's very hopeful. And God is so good. And it's, it's really interesting that people have, what is that, the seventh most asked question so far? Yeah, or at least seven most, most viewed. Yeah, oh, okay. but it's a very good question, a very, a very good one that uh, I think a lot of people really don't know about. Oh, yeah, it was number eight. Yeah. All right, let's move on let's, to number seven, unless we yeah. had a question. No, I was just checking. I don't see any comments or updates on that. So let's go ahead and get uh, um, get the next question up here. Number seven is how big is an angel oh never really thought about that before how big is an angel yeah i love that question it's like um you know i i, I think when angels appear to us um or appear to earthlings i i honestly don't think they appear in their actual size i think they appear somewhat 
to our scale so that we don't become overwhelmed. What's interesting is I understand in the Quran, no, not in the Quran, but I think in um, other Islamic materials um, that supplement the Quran, it says that angels are a mile high. <laughs> they stand a mile high. But I, I'm left because you could actually find a basis for that in the Bible if you want to take things uh, out of context. So if you look at Re Revelation 10, verse 5, it says, And an angel which uh, John saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up, lifted up his hand to heaven. And I imagine this gigantic image of a of an angel you know with his foot on you know like europe and then a big part of his feet or his other foot down in the atlantic ocean but it's not i think being literal there oh actually i should say his foot is probably standing on the u.s but i don't think it's being literal this is being symbolic and not trying to give us an idea of how big angels are it's trying to convey an image of uh, of something different so usually when we see angels in the bible they are usually described as a man so for example in genesis um i think genesis 18 it is when god appears to abraham with two other angels and and abraham recognizes god but still generally treats them like people and they're interacting mm -hmm. with each other and it's not nowhere does it say that these people were any different than uh, the other humans. In fact, these angels then proceed to go to Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's when the whole town turns up to uh, want to have relations with those angels. You know, they didn't. They just thought these were were normal humans. So I agree with Natalie that angels can very much take on probably any form, at least uh, as far as our eyes can see it. And so it's hard to say that there is a particular size that really limits them. When you think about how it, in, in Genesis, people were much taller than they are today, too. So were, did the angels adjust their size as human size adjusted? I, I think they would. Um, and uh, I think in Revelation 21, verse 17, where after is describing the size of the city and the cubits that are being measured. And usually in the Bible, a cubit is measured as like the breadth, uh, I mean, the, the length of the elbow to the arm. And so a lot of people have adjusted that size based on um, what men could have been right after Genesis compared to what people, our size now is. So if we go to Revelation 21, Verse 17, um, it says, then this is John describing uh, what an angel is doing. And he's measuring its walls, the walls of the city of Jerusalem, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man that is of an angel. So here, John is kind of suggesting that we can know these measurements because the angel measured it and it's the same measurement as a man. So it's equating kind of the same size. Um, and so I, I do think they're bigger and that they just appear 
to be similar to our size so that we're not scared when we have uh, a message to receive from them that we're not frightened or spooked out that we feel that we can identify with them to a certain extent. Wow, that's a great verse. I never noticed that detail before. Well, it's on the Bible Ask Answer, so. <laughs> <laughs> we all learn things new every time. All right, anything left on that one? And again, we're live, so if you have questions, feel free to ask them. If you have comments, any details we miss, or anything you'd like to suggest, we'd love to uh, see your thoughts, your suggestions, and uh, just engage with you. So please, please reach out. Let us know you're here. Yep. All right, let's go ahead and get the next question up here. Number six, how far did the Magi travel to see Jesus? good one for Christmas season that we just uh, came out of. Yeah, and I think while we were going through the stats, the the commonality of this question every year increases towards uh, December and Christmas. Um, there are uh, different uh, interpretations of who the men, the wise men from the East are, like where is the East when a Jewish person in the Bible describes someone from the East, where are they coming from? And, um, and we're getting this from Matthew 2, verse 1, I believe. Yeah, Matthew 2, verse 1. Um, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the East came to Jerusalem. And so um, most generally uh, in the Bible, when someone is referred to as coming from the East, uh, it's either Northern Arabia, Syria, or Mesopotamia as the East. And if this were indeed the case, then it would probably have, it's like about 400 miles at the most, at the farthest part of Syria. Uh, so it probably would have taken them two to three weeks is a suggestion that most people give. Um, have you thought of this? Because I've thought of this a little bit, but I want to hear what you have to say before I share the rest. Well, I hope I don't take what you're going to say, but what we do know is, uh, so they come, eventually the Bible says, well, first Matthew 2, 1 says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, uh, it says these people arrived in Jerusalem from the east. So we know, okay, first is the time after Jesus was born. Uh, and then they go and speak to Herod. And after they speak to Herod, Herod says, oh, please swing by after you find the Messiah and tell me where I can find him. And God warns them, and these guys go a different way. They don't tell Herod. And then Herod later goes and causes a massacre. This is uh, Matthew 2, 16. It says, and, and he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men. He flew into a rage, and he gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under. So why did he pick two years old or under? He knew the time when the star appeared, because the wise men told him, if you look earlier up. So it's possible 
that the wise man showed up sometime when Jesus was around one years old or two or or less than you know newly born or two years old. Is that yeah, just a as couple the years end of that? Time. Yeah, just as the end of that verse says, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men, and um, that's right. Bible mentions that phrase twice in Matthew two sixteen and um, uh, in Matt in the chapter in verse 7 and so if we take an adjustment of you know if it takes two to three weeks for people to travel 400 miles from uh, on camel uh, some people have suggested if it might have taken them as long as two years um, based on the uh, time that Herod reckoned from the wise men that it's possible that the wise men could have been from China. There's about 4,000 miles of straight line, roughly, from China to Israel, and they would have had to take a circuitous route. Um, so it, it, they could have come from anywhere. I think, I like to think that they came from Asia, like China Asia. They caused such a stir, and they must have been very different looking. Um, you know, Syrians and Arabians aren't that different in their face as Judeans. So uh, they were all Semitic. Yes. And I like to think that these cause such a stir and they're from the East that they could have looked very different. They could have come from uh, China. That's what I like to think. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what's exciting. The the possibility it could have been that far away. Oh, that's a long ways to travel. Yeah, and that's why maybe it took two years mm -hmm. if it if that's really how long it traveling took. by foot at that you know in that era, no public transportation like you have today. It's uh, no no trains, no cars, no buses, no planes. And to think that the whole time they were following this star, they must have been. Uh, as astronomers, uh, because they're like, this is unusual, and they must have searched the writings, and it was a big deal. I think it was a really big deal. I think they were beyond Syria. Yeah, what's interesting is uh, earlier around Christmas time, we had Saturn and Jupiter uh, pretty much line up and look like one big bright star and people were calling it a Christmas star and suggesting maybe that was what happened during the time of Jesus's birth but I don't think that was the case because as we were just talking about the wise men would have been following that star for a substantial period of time to find Jesus and plus just having you know Jupiter Saturn up in the sky isn't going to point them to the location of the of the Messiah so it was probably a, a grouping of angels or something like that that guided them, took them where they needed to go. And it was one of the signs of for people who were looking for a Messiah because it was a, a prophesied time period. And so there were people in Jerusalem awaiting the coming of the Messiah. Like he should be born by now if XYZ is supposed to happen by the end of this prophecy. And... It, I think it caused an uproar so that people, because they didn't have news back then. Everything was word of mouth. 
And so I think it must have caused enough of an uproar, enough of um, excitement so that people start talking about it, so that people are mentally and spiritually prepared for the message that the Messiah was soon to bring. I don't think it was, oh, some shepherds heard this. No, it was shepherds. It was wise men. It was lots of people talking about this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then when he would go up to uh, Jerusalem, he would go up to uh, the temple, then there was miraculous events happening there too. So, it's cool. All right, good question. All right. I'm, I'm curious to know what the next one is. Yeah, let's uh, let's go ahead on to the next question here. Let's pull that up. And if you guys are watching on, on Twitch, on Facebook, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to drop them in the chat and you know we'll try to get to those as well. So um, the fifth most popular question from last year. Was anyone in the Bible baptized twice? That's an interesting question because you know we often hear today about people doing rebaptism, you know, getting baptized a second time uh, if they've given their uh, they, you know, they may have been baptized as a kid and then kind of fallen away, and now they're coming back as an adult and saying, you know, I want to be baptized again. It kind of made new. Is is that? Uh, is there anything in the Bible that, any examples in the Bible of that happening? There actually is, and I'm trying to look for it. Uh, it's in the. Book of it's Acts, in, I believe. Yeah, it's in Acts uh, 19, verses okay, 1 through 5. 19, verses 1 through 5. Um, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples there, uh, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? And so they said, into John's baptism. Obviously, they're referring to John the Baptist here. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance saying to the people, that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And so then Paul goes on to share with them about Jesus. And so when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So there's a very specific example of people who were baptized not once but twice. And there are some, and I'm sure many other people um, uh, were baptized twice in the day I know uh, my dad was baptized twice uh, based on new truth that he had learned later on because he was baptized um, technically to convince my mother that he was a Christian. But later on, when he was truly converted, he, he wanted to be baptized again, a true baptism. And I think some people choose to be baptized twice when they know a certain truth, and when they learn another biblical truth that's life-changing, uh, they choose to be baptized again. I know lots of people were baptized when they were babies, um, and, and 
they may think, well, I didn't have any choice in the matter when I was baptized. And now that I know the truth and I choose to follow Christ and accept him as my personal savior, I would like to be baptized. They're technically also baptized twice. Amen. Well said. Is it, here's another question onto that. Is it essential to be baptized a second time if you were, for instance, baptized as a baby and you didn't you didn't really make the personal decision at that time because you were a baby um or if you were did you know were baptized as a kid by choice because it's what all the other kids were doing uh but then as an adult you came to find the truth for yourself um is it essential to be baptized again or is it uh it, what's the Bible have to say about that? I, I'm not sure where the verse is, but it says when you believe and repent and are baptized of your sins. Uh, it's, oh, it's I was kind of actually just there. Hebrews. Uh, it's specifically Hebrews 6, 6, but you might need to start a little bit earlier. Hebrews 6, 6. Yeah. Um, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So to renew your vow again, um, if you have lived a life after your first baptism that didn't glorify God, this is suggesting that you can renew your vow to the Lord in baptism again uh, in an effort to publicly say, hey, I was living this way and I am publicly announcing that I am repentant of my sins and being baptized uh, as a sign of that. Because the whole thing about baptism, uh, it shouldn't be done in private. So if people uh, were baptized before and they have a conversion experience, I think it's a personal choice if they choose to be baptized again or not. Um, and baptism in every sense is a public announcement. And there are many people who choose to make that announcement public once more. Um, so I think it's a personal thing based on one's conviction. Um, but like that verse that you mentioned, Math, um, in Hebrews, it's, uh, it, you were gone and now you're back again. And there's no reason why you shouldn't be baptized again. But yeah. I don't think matter that should be taken lightly that every time you sin you should be baptized again it's kind of more this is a public announcement and i'm bringing myself and i'm dedicating myself to god and hopefully those who are baptized truly and truly converted continue to live a life of victory over sin and glorifying god in their walk with the lord because part of baptism is announcing your relationship with God. And, and that basis of a relationship is having a daily walk with him. So you're constantly going to be growing uh, your character into a similitude like him. And hopefully with everyone who is baptized, they continue that walk and they don't draw back and come back, back and forth. So I, I but if for those who do drift away and decide to come back, there is that option for a second baptism. Yeah. 
And I think what you're saying, Natalie, was very important that a lot of us are in ignorance. We might be baptized thinking one thing or understanding God's particular way or the Bible's a particular way, and then we gain new understanding, and you're like, wow, this completely changes my paradigm, and now I realize Jesus is totally different than what I believed, and really then now you might feel baptism is more meaningful. But I, I do also want to give one caution, going back to Hebrews 6, starting at verse 4. Um, it talks about, uh, and could you go back to verse 4? It says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. It's impossible for these people to then basically be baptized a second time. So, I think of Satan, for example, who was in the glorious presence of God, that the Bible says he was a covering cherub. Like, so he's standing right there over God and covering him. He was about as close to God as you could possibly get. He knew God probably better than any of the other angels, and yet he still chose to turn away. And because he had full knowledge of God, because he knew what he was doing, he knew God in everything, there's no way for him to really come back. But I would say most people in this world know so little about God and understand the Bible so little that almost nobody is probably in that position where they are um, beyond the point of rebaptism. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Shall we dive into our next question here? I think we're down to number three, or I should say up to number three. Oh, four. I was off. Okay, four. <laughs> All right. Number four. What do the frogs mean in the Bible? So, most of the most of the time, I believe frogs are just referred to literally. For example, in Exodus, they were one of the plagues that struck Egypt as God was trying to free them from Pharaoh. But if I had to guess, and maybe Nile. You can chime in if you think it's different. I think they're probably talking about the frogs in Revelation 16. And let us take a quick look there. Let's go there. And what's nice is we don't have to guess what they are. Do we have Revelation 16 up on the screen? Revelation 16, verse 13. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So here it's talking about three frogs, and they're coming out of this dragon, out of this beast, and out of a false prophet. And you're like, well, what are these things? These are uh, all from earlier imagery we see and Revelation 12 and Revelation 13. You find the dragon in Revelation 12, and it says in Revelation 12 that dragon is Satan. And uh, probably I would say also Satan in a sense, his, his demons and his... Um, and some people say the Roman Empire. And then the next one would be... Uh, Probably why a lot of people say Antichrist, and another one is, it'll take a long time to explain. I don't think we want to get into that here, but 
So these different institutions, in a sense, out of them comes these three frogs. And we read in Revelation 6, verse 14, these frogs are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So these are demonic spirits. It's outright telling us, just like the dragon was where's Satan. The, where's the verse on this? Revelation 16, verse 14. Oh, we're on. Okay, we're, we have 16, 15 on the screen. 14, there it is. Yeah. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world gather them to battle to that great day of God Almighty. And something that I think is really important with Revelation is you almost always have a duality. If God has something, Satan has its, his evil counterpart. And, you know, so Satan has his city, Babylon. God has his city, the New Jerusalem. So here Satan has his three demonic spirits, his three frogs. And God has his three angels who go out with a message. So Satan is sending out a message trying to deceive people. God is trying to send out a message to try to bring people into truth, trying to help them understand him. You know, those three, three angels' messages can be found in Revelation 14. You know, fear God, give glory to him, for his hour of judgment has come. Then next one is, uh, you know, uh, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And then the fourth one is basically... You don't want to get the mark of the beast. Don't worship the beast as you get the mark. And so, so I would presume that these three frogs are going out giving the counter message. Don't worry, God's time of judgment isn't coming. Don't worry, maybe God isn't even the God of creation. Don't worry, um, you know, Babylon isn't fallen. You should go believe and trust Babylon. That's where truth is. Even though Babylon actually means confusion. And then... Uh, the last one would be, again, you know, the third angel says, don't worship the beast, so you get the mark of the beast. The other frog is probably going to tell you, you should worship the beast. The beast is, it should be worshipped. And don't worry, good things will happen by worshipping the beast. So I have a question here. I, it says, I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. So are these, are these going to look like literal frogs, or is this... Is this a symbolic frog? Is this a symbolic looking like frogs? How, how do you recognize these frogs compared to, you know, the, the grout, grout <laughs> frog that's in, in the ponds and the rivers? <laughs> you look excited, Natalie, to answer that one. So, yeah, I mean, in Revelation, there is a lot of symbolism like the beast of Revelation 13 actually represents a system. Uh, the three angels' messages is, is symbolic in calling people out of Babylon and saying Babylon has fallen. And Jay, you mentioned that Babylon uh, represents confusion. And that's one of the things it does represent, the word itself. Um, I think the system that God is calling us out of is the system of lies and error. And going back to Wendy's question, uh, do the frogs, what do they actually represent? They are unclean spirits speaking lies. If, uh, the characteristic of a frog, what's one of the major characteristics of it, besides being disgusting and slimy, I'm not an amphibian person, obviously, um, but 
they someone is saying here frogs power is in their tongue that's why they speak yes indeed the their tongue they use to catch their prey and the bible when it talks about a tongue it can represent lying or it can represent different languages and i think in this case uh, it is talking about lying and deceit um uh, that satan can only counterfeit god with lies and he says that with you know how do we speak with our tongue um and i really like the parallelism that you pointed out jay with the three angels message and satan counterfeit counterfeiting it with three unclean spirits that look like frogs and 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 here the bible is specifically telling us these unclean spirits are speaking lies and the only way we can tell a difference between the truth and a lie and that's like the biggest question like Pilate asked what is truth honestly all the truth that we need to know for salvation comes from the bible and every lie that god that satan um presents against God can be disproved by the Bible. And that's the only way we can do it. Some people go on to um, a more literal um, uh, ideology of what the tongues represent and that they represent uh, the gift of tongues. Uh, if, uh, lots of people have um, experienced this, um, mostly in the movement of Pentecostalism, where if you have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, you speak in tongues. And uh, if any of you have heard that, it kind of sounds like a babbling. Um, I've seen it on TV and I've been, a, for lack of a better word, I'd say amused, but worried because I didn't understand a thing they were saying. And the fact is this babbling in a different tongue and speaking in a language that is unknown uh, isn't biblical and it creates confusion and it's technically lying because then the person interprets what they claim the Holy Spirit just spoke through them. And the Bible says anytime someone comes with a message from the Holy Spirit or whatever spirit is manifesting through them, test it with the Bible to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word it is because there is no light in them. And so I think the Bible, especially in Revelation, is telling us these unclean spirits of frogs speaking lies test whatever you see, whatever you hear from whatever source with the Bible and the Bible only. And that's why it's really important for us to study God's word and to know what it says for ourselves, because the power of someone else telling you something, if they say it often enough, long enough and loud enough, if it's a lie, you will believe it unless you know the truth for yourself. And I think God, I mean, the war in heaven, was it a physical, a spiritual war? What do you think the war in heaven was really, what, did, did it comprise of swords and shields and instruments of battle? Not really. I think the war in heaven was a battle, it was a debate. It was a battle of minds and ideas and 
theories. It was a debate, a war of the mind. And I think God is preparing us and warning us in Revelation, be prepared for the lies that you will be bombarded with and just know your Bible. And that's, that's a good segue, a good to, segue to, I think, a parallel verse to this, which is Matthew 24, starting at verse 4. And this is where Jesus is talking about some end-time events. And he starts off when asked what the end time is going to look like. He's going to say, Take heed that no man deceive you. Next verse, he says, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. So one deception is going to be is people are going to pretend and say they're Jesus mm-hmm. when they're really not. And then if you go to Matthew 24, verse 11, it says, And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. So you got people pretending to be Jesus, and now you have people pretending to be prophets of Jesus mm-hmm. when they're really not. And that's what's really interesting. Um, well, I guess let's keep going. And then Matthew 24, verse 11. Oh, sorry, Matthew 24, verse 24. And there shall arise false Christ and false prophets, and they will show great signs and wonders, so much so that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. So even the people who know the Bible the best, who have the closest relationship with Jesus, if it was possible, these these deceptions are so good that they might even be deceived if it weren't for maybe... The intervention of the Holy Spirit and and mm-hmm. the Bible, so we got to be really careful and and pay attention here because here you say you see false prophets and signs and wonders being performed. That's exactly what we're being told in Revelation that these are impure spirits, and and you know one of them comes out of a false prophet. These are demonic spirits that perform signs and go to deceive. So mm-hmm. I think these verses are about the same thing. The end time is going to be involving so much deception that just about everybody is probably going to be deceived. And Christ is warning us again and again and again and again in Matthew, don't be deceived. The end times is about deception. Deception is what defines this end period. And in Revelation, again, it's telling us, be on your guard. There's going to be a lot of deception and as mm-hmm. Natalie says, we must use the Bible as our test to really sift truth from error because otherwise we're going to be so overwhelmed, right? I mean, look at everything we're experiencing nowadays with the news. Is this is that true or is that not true? Do right. I believe this person or do I believe that person? Right. And we could just go crazy not knowing what truth is. But praise God we have the Bible that we can mm-hmm. use as the touchstone, that's a term lawyers use, this touchstone that, you know, that can reveal to you, you know, if what you're holding is gold or if mm-hmm. what you're holding is pure or not. You know, what's in- interesting about that is, you know, I, I wasn't raised in the church and I, but I heard a lot of um, TV pastors and stuff when I was growing up. And of course it was all fire and brimstone, hell and damnation, you know, that kind of messaging. And, you know, God is this, is this judging, ready to, to you know are you naughty or nice i'm going to punish you if you're if you're naughty and i'm going to reward you if you're nice kind of god which isn't you know isn't isn't actually god um not the god of the bible but that was the the message i heard all the time when i was young and then as i was kind of exploring things on my own 
Um, and I was in a lot of communities that um, had a lot of different beliefs, you know, atheists, agnostics, and um, Buddhists, and Hindus, and really every different religion out there. I was in a very diverse setting uh, in high school and college. And um, I learned about all of these different belief systems. And I learned and I heard what everyone was saying about the Bible and why I shouldn't believe the Bible, like why it was wrong and why like why it was messed up and everything. And and I had a very scary view of God because of that. And uh, thankfully, God reached me uh, directly and brought me into really like opening and studying his word for myself. And what I started to see in that process was like this character of God that everybody else was talking about wasn't actually the character of the God of the Bible. It, they were describing the character of Satan in the Bible, but saying that that was God. And it wasn't until I actually opened the word myself and started reading it and started seeing a different, you know, a, a God of love and care and it, and I will say it it's it's not always easy because there are some verses that are um you know that have been that if you read them on the surface and you don't go look at the original language and you don't understand the times going on and you know or we apply modern context to... right then it can sound very you know it can be taken in the wrong way and it um and that kind of stuff can be very triggering when you don't when you're not rooted in the truth and and it does make it a challenge sometimes to read it but thankfully you know um God had brought me into a, a community of believers who really did understand these things and were able to help me understand those difficult passages and i um i it just changed my whole world view so much just just really diving into this word and and um and reading it for myself and i think it's you know natalie mentioned it you mentioned it it's so important that um that we do actually open the word and read it for ourselves and have a community that uh that helps us understand some of these mm -hmm. these points that that might be harder to understand and i also think it takes um not just a, a basic understanding of what the bible actually says um but paired with that and married to that is faith and you know we are going to be like jay that bible verse i was looking up and then you're like oh you're just continue reading the passage where it says um even if it were possible the very elect would be deceived i think we're going to be faced with things it's what we have studied and learned from the bible versus what we are actually seeing with our eyes like do i believe beholding with my eyes or do I believe what I have read from the Bible? And that's where the element of faith will kick in. And I'm going to be like, no, I am just going to take a step back and let my faith do the working of what I have studied before and what I know is truth. And despite whatever I see in front of my face, I'm going to take that element of faith. And, and that's where God gives us the strength and power because he knows we're mere mortals. And there's a, a battle going on between good and evil, the great controversy. And, you know, we can't do it on our own. And he will strengthen us based on the faith that we have in him.
Amen. Well said. And it takes it takes time to build that faith. Like I mean, when you make the heart commitment, you start to you can start to experience some of it right away. But it's like um, it's like when you earn your first dollar for work, you think you're rich, but like you can't really live off of just that one dollar. Like you have to keep working at it to build that faith and letting God, um, I mean, when, when I say working, I mean like trusting God, putting your faith in him and following his way be so that he can build that faith in us because um, it does not, it's not something that just, it's just like we go from having, you know, being opposed to the Bible or being, having this scary view of God to like suddenly um, having perfect faith and not not falling away. I mean, look at even how long the disciples spent with Jesus and how much they still struggled. And they were like right there with God per, in, in, you know, first person. Mm-hmm. So um, how much more or how much longer it takes for us to to experience that. Yeah. Hen- yeah. Hence that day by day growth and relationship with him. And as we grow in grace and and learn of new promises to claim and apply them to the experiences we have in our daily life that faith as small as a grain of mustard seed will grow and grow and grow with all of the experiences that we have with God and him helping our trials and him bringing memories of of bible verses we've memorized to encourage us in specific situations i think I had a little book where I would put um, little Bible verses that I wanted to memorize and I'd go over it and over it. And there was one time I felt impressed to put this one verse in there and I put it in there. And later on, I go back to that verse and I'm like, why did I put this verse in here? It does not apply to anything that I have ever experienced. And it took, I think, two years later, I was going through a specific experience And I read that Bible verse and it spoke to me like it was the perfect Bible verse for that situation. And that just increased my faith in God even more and built a trust in him. And Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. And that's why we're here on this earth to build that relationship and use this time that we have on earth to prepare us for what's to come and for heaven where we're going. I mean, our purpose here on life is to vindicate God against all the accusations that Satan has been making towards him. We are the people who will prove God or Satan right or wrong. And so may we be in the faithful few who remain um, remain in the steadfast fight to prove God was right and Satan was wrong. Amen. Uh, Do you have any last comments on this one, or shall we go to the next question? Thank you, Felipe, for that comment. You guys are great. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. Thank you. It's uh, comments like this and you joining us that makes this worth it. All right, let's go ahead and bring our next question up here. We're getting down to our top. Number three. Top three. All right. Number three. Was John the Baptist a Nazarite? It's a very good question. What do you think, Jay? In and say, oh, 
Um, I'll just jump in, and, and I, uh, I think Luke 1, verse 15 is where we Bible verse where John John's mother was commissioned to raise him as a Nazarite from his birth. Uh, so we have the angel speaking to uh, Ze Zacharias, I believe, and he says, the angel speaking, for be great of John. Uh, he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And so when we see the phrase, uh, shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. Uh, there are other Bible verses uh, that equate this with the Nazarite vow, that when a woman is pregnant and uh, she should drink no strong drink, and when the, the child is brought up to not drink strong drink, among other things, it's an indication that he's going to take this Nazarite vow. Um, and so one of them is abstaining from strong drink, and we see that in the verse we just read. Um, but the the vow of the Nazarite uh, comprises mostly of three things, and that's found in Numbers chapter 6, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. Um, and so the first thing uh, in that chapter is talking about uh, wine and strong drink. He shall separate himself from wine and similar drink, and he shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice nor eat fresh grapes or raisins. So people who take on that vow don't even drink grape juice or anything that is of the fruit of the grape. And um, uh, all the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from the seed to the skin. I actually know a person who has claimed to take the Nazarite vow, and I did, he's come over to my house several times, and if I'm offering anything with grape juice or fruit punch that has grape juice, he does not take it. And um, so I've learned to give him apple juice instead. The second thing um, is allowing the head of to grow in the verse it says all the days of the vow of his separation no razor shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the lord he shall be holy then he shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow so they let their hair grow out until their vow is fulfilled whatever that vow may be um and then the third thing is that oh, just one point on that. It's interesting. There was someone who had a lifelong Nazarene vo uh, vow, right, and could never cut his hair, or shouldn't have ever cut his hair. Yeah, yeah you're Samson's. talking about Samson. Um, yeah, we'll get to that right after I get through the third one. Um, uh, number six, six. All the days that he separate himself to the Lord, will not go near a dead body. So they're not supposed to have anything from the fruit of the vine or grapes, nothing to do with it. They're supposed to grow their hair out and they're supposed to avoid anything dead or decaying. And Samson, like you said, Jay, uh, was someone who should not have cut his hair. He, had his, he was supposed to be a Nazarite that uh, would glorify God and um, he, was, he was blessed with strength and he knew that, and he knew that if anything was ever to, if he was ever to cut his hair or have his hair cut, that he would lose his strength. 
but many people think that's that's the one thing that Samson did um, uh, that made him lose his Nazarite vow. Uh, I'm not sure where the verse is, um, but uh, when it first starts talking of Samson uh, in the book of Judges, I believe, maybe not. Yes. Um, yeah. It, it has an example of him going through the vineyard and the wine presses of the Philistines where he finds a Philistine lady that caught his eye. He should not have been there in the first place because he's not supposed to be around grapes. Judges 14 verse 5. So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now to his surprise and so on and so forth. Um, he wasn't supposed to be around vineyards. He wasn't supposed to be around wine presses. If he was a true Nazarite, he was supposed to be staying away from anything of the grape. So many people think, oh, he cut his hair and that's what did it. No, it was actually a lifestyle prior to that. that and then he's hanging around the carcass of the lion he ripped up. <laughs> exactly. There are different ways that the Bible shows us Samson was not true uh, to his Nazarite vow. And um, that good point. And uh, yeah, there are people to this day, like I said, I know someone who has a Nazarite vow. And, and I found that people who take on this Nazarite vow uh, tend to um, be feast keepers of the Old Testament, like uh, feasts that had to do with the tabernacle, they still keep the Passover, and those things have been fulfilled. So there are some people who might say, you know, should I still take up a Nazarite vow like they did in the Old Testament? And I think it, to a certain extent, if one is impressed to take a Nazarite vow um, and they feel convicted, then, you know, that's between them and the Lord. But my experience limited as it may be, has found that those who do do that tend to accept things in the Bible that have already been fulfilled, and it kind of distracts them from things like the three angels message and um, righteousness by faith because they, they fall into the works. And so it's a fine line, I think, and that's just really something is. Thank you. Did you have anything to share on this? No, nope. uh, she covered everything. I I would say it's a great job, Nellie. <laughs> great. Let's uh, go on to the. Are we down to that was number three? Let's yeah, no. Down, down to number two. And just to recap for those of you who are just joining us, we're covering the top questions, top viewed questions of 2020. So yes. now we're at the num top number two question, and soon you'll we'll see the number one question. All right, so the number two most viewed question was, what were the characteristics of the Church of Philadelphia? Maybe we should talk a little bit about the different churches when we answer that one. The, you know, the, there, there's multiple mentioned, right? And maybe we should touch lightly on each one of those and then that one, highlight that one. So Revelation... <laughs> Starting in Revelation 2 covers seven letters of Christ to seven different churches. And these were seven real churches. They were 
um, they formed a circuit in, uh, I believe, what is today Turkey and sort of that um, Middle East area. And they all, well, Middle East Europe, you know, around that area. And they were all part of this male circuit, you know, so they were all sort of in communication with each other and you go in a loop. And these were also some of the early churches, some of them that were founded by the Apostle Paul, for example. So these were Gentile churches, not not Jerusalem, not Jewish mm -hmm. people. These were largely in Gentile areas. This was the core of early Christianity. And each church had a different message. And as you start looking at these churches, oh, great, we got a church map. As you start looking at these churches, you might start realizing that maybe they tracked the experience of those local churches as they happened back in time, but they also applied to different eras of Christianity. So Revelation 2.1 talks about, um, you know, these people who had, were, you know, really great church that had their act together, but God's warning them, you know, don't forget your first love, you know, your, your early passion as a Christian, or else your candlestick will be removed from you and given to given to someone else. It really describes well the early Christian church during the, the time of the New Testament that we're reading of Acts and um, and shortly probably after that. So around the first hundred years of Christianity. Well, actually, maybe a little bit earlier because you get to the next church, Smyrna, and it's talking about now tribulation, suffering, death, people dying, persecution. So now we're entering the second era of Christianity where now they're really experiencing heavy, heavy persecution. We know the Roman Empire is killing Christians um, brutally, you know, in the Colosseum. They're being torn up by lions or whatever. It's awful. But Christianity is now spreading because you weren't going to be a Christian unless you're really serious. And these people were on fire for Jesus. And everybody saw it, saw that these people had something supernatural with them. So they're going on fire. They're doing great. Christianity, though dying, is thriving. We get to the next era of Christianity, which is symbolized by Pergamum, the third church. And that letter to the angel talks about how, um, you know, they have, God says, for example, you know, you hold true to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, you know, and you, you have some problematic uh, theology coming in. You have the doctrine of Balaam. And Balaam was, a, you know, this false prophet in the Old Testament. Not good things are said about him, but his doctrine now is making it to the church. So Satan is now realizing persecution isn't working. He needs to change his game. So he's trying corruption. He's trying deceptions that are weaseling their way into the Christian church and corrupting it. And Paul talks about that Jesus can't come until there's this big falling away, this apostasy that has to happen. So now we're seeing the beginnings of this great apostasy coming into place with the third third era of Christianity. Then we come to Thyatira and it's uh, now it's just all out bad. Um, you know, uh, they, you know, basically says, I have a few things against you because you put up with the woman Jezebel. Now she was about one of the most evil people, not even just women, evil people in all of the, the Old Testament. Absolutely wicked, corrupted Abel, who was ready wicked, but made him even worse. And and so 
we just see now just evil is now completely entrenched in the church. We go on now to Revelation 3, and we come to Church of Sardis. And basically Jesus says, you know, I know you're dead, but just hold on to what you have. You know, and you're not perfect, but I know you're doing the best under these circumstances. So strengthen what, so be watchful and strengthen the things that remain that you are ready to die. And so this describes well the, the early period of the Reformation. You know, these reformers start coming out. They've, they're rediscovering the truths that had been lost, but now they're under threat of persecution. They are dying again, just like we had persecution in the early church. Now it's coming back in the, the time of the Reformation. But now we come to Philadelphia, which means, uh, you know, the city of brotherly love is what it was known for. So now we're reaching probably like a golden era of Christianity that I would say started around the, the 1800s. We have the Bible Society starting. Bibles are now being printed left and right. The word is reaching people. So uh, oh, we have the great, uh, uh, what's the term for it? Awakening. I think it was called the Great Awakening, where religion, Christianity, Christianity is making a huge comeback in U.S. and Europe. And... And this, again, is now sort of this golden era, again, of Christianity. It's making a comeback. Um, real good things are said about it. Um, but Jesus now starts, and I'll let, maybe Natalie, you'll like to talk about this part now. What What is the, the significance when it's talking about how uh, uh, it, it opens up with, uh, well, each church opens up with a little description of Jesus. And in this church, it says, uh, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, he that opens and no man can shut, and shuts and no man can open. And I think that's an important aspect of this period and ties into an earlier thing we talked about. So, Natalie, would you like to cover that? Yeah, um, okay. Uh, I thought you were... On a roll, but okay. <laughs> um, so that faithful church, as you were describing, uh, Philadelphia is, um, it's, it's an encouraging time for the church. Like you were talking for those of us just joining in. Um, there are different views of the seven churches described in Revelation, uh, the, the first part of Revelation. And um, some people think that, uh, take it literally and figuratively or dual application. Um, some people think uh, these were letters that were actually written by John to all the different churches because the revelation was sent to these seven churches. And uh, Jay was elaborating on how it actually represents the characteristics of the Christian uh, church throughout time and that each uh, city church represents a period of time that the world church went through, not just geographically, but throughout time. From the time the church began at the time of the apostles when and until the end of time. And so Philadelphia, like you mentioned, it being in the 1800s, um, that is when we have uh, the United States becoming... And the United States plays a big part in Bible prophecy. 
uh, the land of the free, freedom of religion, freedom of thought, freedom of expression. And it's no, it's no wonder that the Church of Christ would thrive during this time. And um, uh, they persevere and they will keep, he will keep us through the hour of trial. And he says, I'm coming quickly. That verse in um, Revelation, um, I think chapter 3, are we on? Verse um, yes, 11. Verse 11, behold, I come quickly, hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. When did we hear the behold, I come quickly? Through in, in church uh, history, when did we really hear behold, I come quickly? You're like, am I really going to go there? <laughs> Um, I'm blanking out right now, but I know I'm going to be like face planting. <laughs> um, the great disappointment when everybody was saying Christ is coming quickly. Christ is coming in 1844. I think that the church was thriving during that time. And behold, I oh, come. Sorry, I thought your question about a time in the Bible where that was said. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry, never mind. I, I thought we were talking about the the, yeah. the throughout history. Anyway, so that's just a thought I'm throwing out there. It might be um, too uh, uh, for some of the viewers, but that's okay. <laughs> um, but actually, that's a good point because you, you say, uh, let me go back to Sardis because I think in the, the church just before it, Church of... Okay, so in Revelation 3.3, 3, God is saying... Or Jesus is saying, I will come as a thief, and you will not now know the hour I will come. So he's saying, I'm going to be coming. He starts off with that church, that church saying, I'm coming. Philadelphia, he says, I'm coming quickly. And then we get to the final church, the last church, Laodicea. So there's actually one more church after Philadelphia. And for that one, he says, uh, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears me, oh, I will open the door and I will come into you. So he's getting closer, closer, closer. And and so yeah, you could if you looked at it carefully, that the Church of Philadelphia thought Christ was coming to them. They were disappointed, but really they're close to Jesus coming, but there's one last church that really will be the the one to come when Jesus comes. And so which one are we in now? Yeah, so that's we're in the Laodicean church right now where we got up and then we kind of cooled down and God says, I know it works. You're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. And I wish you were either hot or cold. But being in this lukewarm state um, is, is, is dangerous. And Christ warns his church of the last days. Don't be in a lukewarm state uh, because he says in Revelation 3, verse 16 of the Laodicean era, I'm going to say. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's quite graphic description there. But he's, he's telling us, you know, if you're for me, be for me. If you're not for me, be not for me. But to be in this gray area is deceptful is deceitful not just to yourself but to those who you are preaching to 
So we've kind of, there are many people who are like, um, you know, the church is in this blah phase right now where we're preaching, but we don't really live up to what we preach. And oftentimes we'll, the only way you can um, sift the cold from the hot, so to speak, is through persecution. And that's what the rest of Revelation starts to talk about. There's going to be a persecution and the people who in this lukewarm church who are you know, we're all united together. Some of us are cold, some of us are hot, and we're all lukewarm in persecution. The cold are going to go this way and the hot are going to go this way. And let's hope that we're in the hot. What's interesting related to that is Revelation 3.10, going back to the Church of Philadelphia, it says, because you have kept the word of my patience, because you guys were a good church, I also will keep you from the hour of temptation which will come upon the entire world to try them that dwell upon the earth. So sort of what Natalie was just talking about, the very last church, Laodicea, is going to go through a significant time of temptation that will weed out the wheat from the, cha the, the chaff, mm -hmm. that will separate God's people from Satan's people. And this all ties into what we we're talking about earlier about those three frogs who are going to go out into the whole world and are going to deceive everybody. Those frogs, we didn't talk about the context of Revelation 16, but that was part of the last plagues. And that was part of the sixth of the seven plagues where these frogs now go out and tempt everybody. We're talking about near the end of the end, just before Christ comes, that this temptation, this time of massive deception is going to... Um, be the ultimate test between people. So I, I have a question about this because it's like, okay, the Church of Philadelphia, because of their patience and the era in which they were here, um, they God protects them from this, right? From what's to come. Um, but it if we're now in the church of Laodicea, uh, it, it it feels a little uncomfortable to me. This doesn't really feel like a loving God to me. Uh, that what he's part gonna doesn't? Spit us, that if we're lukewarm, he's going to spit us out like vomit. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a very loving God. So, um, I, and, and, and it feels a little bit wrong that, like, you know, I didn't get to choose the, the era in which I'm born. I didn't get to choose to be born during the and live in the during the time of Laodicea versus Philadelphia. So, um, what what if I'm struggling with this? How, how can I understand this um, as far as God's love and as far as uh, getting through uh, this this time period? Um, I'll take a whack at it, and then Jay, you can add. Um, it's kind of like communication. Like you guys are married for, I think you guys got married a year before I did. And I've been married for like five years and I have learned communication is key. I can get mad at my husband and he doesn't know. <laughs> I just become mad and, um, and I, you know, take a step back and I communicate, you know, this, 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 
makes me mad or makes me angry. And if you continue to be this way, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Like, like, you know, it's like if you continue to be this way. And I think um, no matter how much of someone, sometimes your words aren't carefully chosen and we're human. But I think here Jesus is is communicating to us and he's like, if you continue to be in the state that you are in, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to have no choice than, than to do this because you're not expressing love and you're not expressing hate. You're in this weird funk where I can't identify you as either. And I think he's calling us to go back to the spirit of the era of the church of in Philadelphia. And my husband just peeked in and he's like smiling. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I think Christ is calling us to go back to the spirit of the uh, Philadelphian church um, and we're, we're, we're warm, we're on fire, we're excited for Christ coming again. Uh, there I have met people. Um, I have talked to a girl and I was like, Jesus is coming soon and the prophecies are being fulfilled and I've just learned XYZ. And she said, no, I don't want to come before I get married. Believe it or not, there are some in the church who want to find happiness in this earth, who, who want to live out their life in this earth. And Christ is saying, hey, you're in a mellow stage right now. You're happy where you're in. You're supposed to be on fire for me. You're supposed to be on fire for what's to come. You're supposed to be on fire for the commencement of the great controversy, I would that you would be hot, not cold or lukewarm. And I think he's using the strong language to wake us up. And um, and it's a warning. There, There's strong language uh, that the prophets used in the Old Testament. Isaiah uses the most descriptive and emotional strong language. And, and I think Jesus understands our minds and he's like wake up because like you said that reaction i get when i hear that makes you take back doesn't it and that's i guess it, it completed its purpose it makes you take a step back and say well what can i do so that you don't speak to me that way and we know for a fact that god loves us more than anything because he died for us what what more love can he show us so having that in the back of our mind helps us kind of accept such language and be like well what am i doing you know you know um does that kind of touch on yeah i think it yeah. does and actually that word to spew is the the greek word actually could be better translated to vomit so it's almost like an involuntary action and because yeah, historically, if you go to Laodicea, uh, their water system there comes from a spring, a hot spring that has a lot of minerals in it. And it starts off very hot, and then by the time it gets to um, the city, it's lukewarm, and it tastes really bad, <laughs> unless it's really hot or really cold. That water, water at lukewarm just tastes atrocious. And, and so imagine drinking this terrible water, and you just ugh, you spit it out. And that's kind of this visual reaction God gets if we're just lukewarm or we're cold. I, I just I just had this like epiphany go off in my head when you were saying that about how 
in many ways that does sort of describe the climate today. Like you think of all of the people who, and I don't know, I might get get myself into trouble here saying this, but you think about all the people who claim to be Christians, but don't even try to have the spirit of Christ, who don't even try to, um, you know, to grow in Christ likeness or or in any way connect with the character of Christ. And is that what it is to be lukewarm, to say like, oh, here I am, like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus, so I'm saved, but, like, I don't really believe because I'm not doing anything in my life consistent with a, with that belief. Like Matthew 7, verse 22. Maybe we could get up on the screen. So Jesus, this, this is what Jesus is saying. He says, many will say to me in that day, the day of his coming, day of judgment, Lord, Lord. Lord, you know, Jesus, Lord, Lord, you're our God, right? Um, Have we not prophesied in your name and in your name cast out devils and in your name done many wonderful works? And what does Jesus say? Verse 23 says, And then I will declare unto these people, I never knew you. Depart from me. Get away from me. I'm spewing you out. You who practice lawlessness. So, yeah, Jesus is warning, and there's many other warnings like that, there's, that there's so many people who think they're Christians, they're using the name of God, you know, they're doing these things in God's name as Christians, as Christians, and completely don't know Christ, completely mm-hmm. are so far from how God really wants us to be. And that's almost worse than saying, or maybe I would say that is worse than saying, I don't believe in a God. Mm-hmm. And that's what it seems to be saying there to the Church of Laodicea. I mean, that's what he seems to be saying is, like, it's worse to be claiming yourself as this, but not really caring about being mm-hmm. this. Now, I, And I, I don't even know if it's caring. It's, I mean, these could be people who are so absolutely deceived about what it really means to know God, mm-hmm. to be in his image, to bear his name that they like and that's what Matthew 7 22 is saying these people so utterly convinced they were doing what God wanted Mm -hmm. what Christ expected and yet they totally missed the mark yeah and someone just asked um is this is the Laodicean church specifically about Adventist church or Christian churches in general and um to tie it in with what Jay is saying real quick, uh, you know, as Adventists believe um, that they are the remnant church and uh, a lot of Adventists do identify in the time period because the Adventist church is really new and it came uh, into existence uh, during the time of Philadelphia after uh, the great disappointment when Christ was coming, behold, I come. And we're like, 1844, he's coming, he's coming. And um, he didn't come. And there were very few remnant who were like, okay, we know this time period in 1844 describes the cleansing of the sanctuary. 
And we thought the cleansing of the sanctuary uh, means the cleansing of the earth by fire. So instead of reversing the time period, because we're sure of the time period, let's look it up. And they studied the Bible more and they found that the cleansing of the sanctuary, there's a sanctuary up in heaven. And that's kind of how the Adventist church was born. And that's why the following time period, a lot of people identify, Adventists identify themselves with the Laodicean church from following a time period. And then, and we're definitely as messed up as the Laodicean Church. <laughs> indeed, we have um, uh, unfortunate terms within the Adventist Church where we uh, describe some as liberal and some conservative. Uh, and um, depending on which party you fall, you're obviously going to call uh, the opposite party cold and view yourself as hot. Um, we're not saved in a church. We are saved individually. God will work through his church at the end of time. But he works Which through... transcends Adventism. What? Which transcends even the Adventist church. Exactly. And so whether you're in the Adventist church, whether you're in the Baptist church, uh, I am in the Adventist, Adventist church, so I identify with the lukewarm church right now. Um, I don't think we're spreading the three angels message like we should. So I'm trying to do my best as an individual uh, to do that. I try to work within my church to do that. Um, I think the more of us within whatever church we're in who decide to become hot, maybe we can heat up everybody else around us. Um, and we're supposed to be particularly in tune with this message of being lukewarm. This is the message for the church right before Christ comes. This is the message for us individually right before Christ comes. And so, um, like Wendy was mentioning, you know, there are some people who uh, think themselves Christians, but they have nothing to do with Christ. You look at their life and they have nothing to do with Christ. And Jay brought the perfect verse where people preaching in the name of God, preaching in the name of making miracles in the name of Jesus. And Jesus comes back and says, I don't know you. Yeah, you used my name. Yeah, you did many works, but I don't know you. So it makes us take a step back and say, do I know Christ? If someone looking at me, can they say, can they see Christ? And so there's a fine line here between being judgmental uh, of others versus being judgmental of oneself. We individually are supposed to look to Christ and compare ourselves to Christ. Am I doing what I can do to be more like Christ? Am I being hot or cold? Am I contributing to the lukewarmness of the church I'm in? And it's very, there's a concept of, of the church, but we often forget uh, that we comprise the church. And so if we individually look at our life and stay focused on Christ and look to him and try to imitate his character, we'll be hot no matter what. And I think that's what Christ is telling us. He's like, and I really like that um, comment that you made, Jay, about uh, the church in Laodicea actually having that spring um, and that the vomit. I mean, Christ... Uh, he, it's amazing 
look at the history and, and go back how perfect uh, it is. And um, the Bible is one. Yeah, of we only nicked the surface yes. on that. It's so deep. And I, I, I think. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say just. Um, I know we're kind of going long on this question, but I feel like it is. You know, this is an important topic. Um, but I, I wanted to just ask one more piece on it, which is, why would God want us to be cold? What does He? How does He respond to? Or how? how he says, "I would rather you be cold than lukewarm." I mean, I can understand Him wanting us all hot, but why would He want us to be cold? How does He treat? I'm just gonna those jump that on cold? that. Um, you know, if you're cold. It's obvious, right? He's, he's basically telling us, you know, either you're black or you're white. If you're gray, where do you stand? You know, for those who are white, okay, he's white. For those who are in black, okay, they're black. Um, maybe I should use different colors just for uh, <laughs> or anything. But um, I, when you're neither on the left or you're neither on the right, Pick a side already. That way, people looking at you will know where you are. That way, I will know where you are. Of course, God knows our heart. But Christ is basically saying, don't be in the gray area. Pick a side already. I, that's what I think. I don't know if Jay has something. Uh, I'm good. There's a, there's a verse that came to mind, too, um, about how God treats those who are in sin and those who you know there's there's a couple of verses around that um about how he he you know if we are fallen away he essentially kind of puts greater love on us to draw us back grace abounds even more. grace abounds and there's another one um there's that story of though your sins may be there's one about though your sins may be as scarlet, as scarlet. yeah, yeah. I, Isaiah one, yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to maybe bring those up? Yeah, that's it. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So God is really trying to, you know, I think if we are cold, He that's he like like you said grace abounds like he pours more onto us so uh, more good onto us so that we can see him through all of the cloud of sin and so he can he, he can reach us whereas if we're lukewarm that's you know we there's not as much he can do there with us yeah, I, I could go on and on on that topic. <laughs> um, secret is love. Love God. Let that love burn in your heart. Let Study how God loves you. Mm -hmm. And because he first loved us, we can love him, and then we can love others. Like That's the secret, I would say. That's the secret sauce in a nutshell. It's all about love, and I'm not using cheap love. This is love that's beyond our comprehension mm -hmm. that's going to take us trillions of years to wrap our head around. I mean, this is, this is, God is love. His law is love. We're supposed to be in his image. We're supposed to be love. Like it, this is love that has to rise above the wrongs that are done to us 
has to rise above even what our enemies do to us and um that can't come from us i mean have you ever have you ever like tried to love someone who really deeply hurt you like and maybe repeatedly like that's you can't find that in yourself like that has to come from god to be able to love them as a broken human that he still loves and i would say only a hot person can do that and in second thessalonians uh first uh second that tongue twister huh second thessalonians 2 verse 10 so many t's <laughs> uh, it talks about um well, actually, if we start at verse 9, it says, you know, talk about the coming of, of the lawless one who will be in accordance with how Satan works. And he will use all sorts of displays of powers through signs and wonders that serve this great lie he's trying to spread. I mean, this is talking about what we've been talking about, mm -hmm. this huge time of temptation, so much deception going on. Um, and then on verse 10, it says, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So, I mean, maybe to wrap no up everything we've been talking about today, why, why, repeat, why are people going to perish? Why are people going to die? Why are people going to choose death over life? It's because they have not the love of truth. They're loving something else. There's some other reality, there's some sort of lie that they would rather believe than rather love objective truth. Mm -hmm. And this truth actually also is not inanimate because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Mm -hmm. Like God is truth too. He embodies it just like he embodies love. Mm -hmm. And so if you reject truth and you want to go into whatever other reality you are, you're choosing basically to be under a powerful delusion and God is not going to just hold you back and force you to come to him. He's going to let you go the way you want to go. Mm -hmm. He will sadly, you know, almost like a dog, he'll let go of the leash and let you run to where you want to go and you'll mm -hmm. have to suffer the consequences of that. Which uh, what we're talking about actually now would tie really well into the last and final question, the number All one right. question. Happy Sabbath from Christ Church, New Zealand. So, it's got to be morning over there. Wow, all the way from New Zealand. Yeah. Welcome, welcome. Glad you're joining us. Probably early morning over there. Oh, welcome, Julius. <laughs> We're getting representation from the Philippines. Wow, so. Awesome. Thank you, all of you, on the other side of the globe. Praise God. Thank you for joining us. So, time for the big reveal. What is the number one viewed question of 2020? Ooh, leaving us in suspense. <laughs> Tune in <laughs> to next, next week, week. <laughs> January 15th. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> okay, wait, there it is. Let's bring that back. Should we bring that back? Should we answer it? Or are we being put, I guess we're being... Put on suspense for next week. <laughs> well, it was a great discussion. And I think yeah. um, 
I think uh, tying it up with last verse, uh, Jay was Holy Spirit inspired and left us with no excuse. He has shown us the ultimate love. And like Pilate said, what is truth? And you said it. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so let us acquaint ourselves with the Bible. Let us memorize it. Let us preach it in our life. Be hot for the Lord. And um, yeah. Happy Sabbath, everybody. Okay, happy Sabbath. Happy Sabbath. Hello, Abigail. Hello, everybody, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And yes, let us remind you, we will be back next week, same time, same channels. If you join us on Twitch, we'll be there. If you join us on Facebook, you join us on YouTube, we'll continue to be joining you at this time next Friday. Amen. And uh, I can't read the name there, but it says, uh, thank you for your answers. Happy Sabbath from India. I think that's Delish Daniel. Yes, that, that is it. All right, great. Thank you all for joining us and have a wonderful Friday evening or Saturday morning wherever you are in the world. And if you have questions for next time, leave them in the comments and yes. we will get or to you next week. Go to Bible Ask and drop your questions into BibleAsk.com and submit them through there um, or, you know, drop them into the chat. Um, or sorry, BibleS.org, not .com. Slash live. Um, and there might be a little checkbox, a way to indicate that you're okay with us speaking about this on on uh, live video. Yeah. But yeah, drop your questions in there and encourage your friends to drop questions in there too. And, you know, there's a lot of Facebook conversations that are popping up these days where people are um, asking challenging questions and making comments about God that or their perception of things that are a great opportunity to listen to what people's questions are and what they're struggling with. And so if you see those happening and you're not sure how to respond, um, feel free to ask their question to us, you know, to, to Bible Ask. And, you know, we'll try to answer that on here and then you can share it with mm -hmm. people. So mm -hmm. thank you again for joining us and we will see you all next week. <laughs>